as, as we heard about the parasha and as we saw the scriptures, we saw, thank you, Terry. Um, we saw that uh, it's from Exodus 35, and normally I'd speak from that, but today I chose to speak from Hebrews instead. I haven't spoken from Hebrews in quite a while. And, uh, and this particular passage in Hebrews really struck me. Uh, I would also mention that First Kings, the Haftorah portion, is, and both that and the Exodus portion are about uh, the building up of, uh, in one case, the tabernacle, or the, called the tent, sometimes, and other times, and in First Kings, it's the temple. But uh, Hebrews is an amazing book. Um, we're not sure who actually wrote it. Many people used to think it was Paul, but I think that it was someone else, and, and that seems to be the idea, that somebody else wrote this book. Not sure who. And obviously, it's written to the Hebrews. Those Jewish believers, believers in Yeshua in the first century, and it would seem that they were under some persecution even then, uh, probably similar to us as soon as they said that they believed in Yeshua. We see this, for instance, in Genesis. Hebrews 12.3, where it says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary in your souls and lose heart. I think the inference there is that don't lose heart. We know people are coming against you, but don't turn away from the Lord. And uh, we see it again in Hebrews 13, 13 and 14. So let us go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the one that is to come. And so we realize that there's something going on here with Jewish believers. And uh, besides the persecution, on very much like today, there also were some strange teachings. And we see that in Hebrews 13.9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. So there must have been some strange teachings against grace and maybe more on the side of law without grace. Um, and then it says, not by foods that have not benefited those occupied by them. So this is uh, something we see in the book of Hebrews. And what I'd like to do is, uh, because I think Hebrews, for the most part, was written to Jewish believers so that they would not turn away from Yeshua. That was really one of the purpose. I mean, there are a lot of purposes in this book. It, it is filled with uh, information about Yeshua. But I think this, the, the idea was that uh, believing in Yeshua is, is, is 
what you need to do. And if you don't believe in Yeshua, you're turning away from the Jewish heritage and the God of Israel. So turning the, the whole argument around and saying, if you don't believe in Yeshua, you are losing your Jewish heritage. And, and here's why, and we'll look at some of this. We're going to focus on chapter 9, which was part of the parsha. But I want you to get a sense of the first 10 chapters. So we're going to look at just the, the, um, the banners that are uh, used in these. So chapter 1, it was all about the superiority of the Son, obviously Yeshua. Um, and then in chapter 2, there was a warning not to drift away. And number 3, Yeshua is, uh, oh, and part of 2 is Yeshua is greater than the angels. In 3, Yeshua is greater than Moses. And also part of 3 is listen and obey or harden and fall away. Number 4 is make every effort to enter God's rest. Yeshua is our compassionate Kohen Gadol. Kohen Gadol means high priest. Number five is moving to a, a more mature um, understanding. Number six talks about the promise and the oath. Number seven, Melchizedek, uh, uh, a Kohen, a priest forever, and Yeshua, again, our Kohen uh, Gadol forever. And then Yeshua, the mediator of a better covenant. I mean, are you getting the sense here that this is trying to tell the people who are Jewish that Yeshua is the Jewish Messiah? We say that all the time in Messianic Judaism. We say he's the Jewish Messiah, meaning that he came out of the, uh, the prophecies and all, all of what was promised to the Jewish people. And uh, then finally in chapter 9, the earthly sanctuary, limitations of the earthly service, the heavenly sanctuary, the mediator's death was necessary, and great, greatness of Messiah's sacrifice. And then 10 was the perfect pardon in the new covenant. So let's look at 9 as we see what God wants us to know through this book. I'm not going to read all the verses of 1 through 5, but the summary of them would be that this is looking at the tabernacle, the holy place, which is in this case the outer court, the menorah, the table, the bread, uh, and then looking at the holy of holies, which is beyond the second curtain, and there we have the altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, and the... Uh, Ark uh, jar, which is holding the manna, and Aaron's rod, and, and the tablets of the covenant, and the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. So, one of the interesting things I, I find in the book of Hebrews, but especially in chapter 9, is that you won't see the name Yeshua. The only thing you will see is Messiah. And I'm going to I believe I can tell you why, but that'll come in a moment. So this is a context. The, these first five verses is a context for Jewish people to understand. And, you know, when you're trying to 
convince somebody of something. If you start with your argument immediately, you're going to get shut down. But if you find areas of agreement to begin with, now you have a foundation to speak to somebody. And so that's what I think was happening here, that there was this foundation of, well, okay, let's talk about the tabernacle, that's fine, and let's talk about the, the limitations of the earthly service, which we're going to do in a second, and we're going to continue to develop agreement and and, and make things very familiar to the listener. So then we're going to start going from the known to what seems might be in question. But that's after you feel comfortable as a Jewish person listening to what I'm saying, because we're going to have all this agreement. And so we're going to also agree about the explanation of the priests that come in verses 6 through 10. Um, they were continually in the outer court. The high priest entered the Holy of Holies just one time a year. The high priest brought blood into the Holy of Holies when he went there on Yom Kippur, and he offered that for him himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. And so the Jewish people would be okay with all of that. Now the writer of Hebrews connects the role of Messiah with that past foundation. And so throughout the chapter, as I mentioned, Yeshua is not named. And I think it's because the Messiah is an easier concept for Jewish people to understand back in the first century than Yeshua. Just like it is now. So if you say Messiah to even the most orthodox Jew today, they will know exactly what you're talking about. They won't have a problem with talking about Messiah. But if you say Yeshua, all of a sudden, everything goes up. You know, and they say, ah. Oh, you know, can't be. So let's look at how this transition from the foundation was made to Messiah and how it obviously was Yeshua without mentioning his name. So in verse 11, we'll read, uh, you can see it on the screen. But when Messiah appeared as Kohen Gadol, so the Messiah appeared as the high priest of the good things that have now come, passing through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. He, and I put in parenthesis Yeshua, entered into the holies once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. So Messiah is the high priest. Messiah was sent by God. Messiah was not man-made. Just because he was a man, he wasn't man-made. And so he was greater than anything man had made. And we know that he was perfect. And only a perfect sacrifice could obtain this eternal redemption. And Messiah entered the holies once as well, but it was once and for all, meaning not, not only for all people, but for all times. And so this was God's, in a sense, finished work. 
Um, now, it wasn't finished in some regards because obviously Yeshua comes back and, and gives uh, the opportunity, but we'll read about that uh, for salvation one more time. So, um, Messiah's blood was required just as it was for the high priest. It wasn't his blood, but in this case it was Messiah's blood. Uh, and obviously it's compared to the blood of the goats and the calves, which were repeatedly needed, it needed all the time, and, and certainly used at Yom Kippur each year. And then in verse 13 it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, my main takeaway from this section here, yeah, it talks about the repetition of the blood and the requirements of the blood and, and that Messiah came without blemish. But my main takeaway is that last sentence. Cleanse our conscience from dead works. Now, I, I think that some believers have not really allowed God to do this. I mean, God still, you know, I, th I think that it's, it's whether or not we allow this by faith or we're going to live in the past. Uh, when, we when we see our conscience cleansed from dead works, so often we think of our past, we think of either the past of how we have been hurt or how we've done bad things, and it, it, it hurts our conscience. But Messiah came to cleanse our conscience, and we have to accept that by faith. We just have to understand that there is no place to condemn ourselves of what has happened in the past. We are to move forward in Yeshua because we, are, we can only truly serve the Lord if we have a clean conscience. We have to, and it says, in order to serve the living God. So the clean conscience is not just to make us feel better, but it's also what is required to serve God with freedom. Look, there are a lot of people who don't have a clean conscience and they serve God. But it's, it's, it's not a, there's, there's, a lack of freedom attached to it. There, there's, there, you can feel the heaviness that goes along with the service. And we have to be free from that heaviness because otherwise we are a slave to that rather than free to Yeshua. So this to me is very, very important that we understand that this is our goal. And maybe we can't achieve it tomorrow, but this is our goal to achieve a clear conscience so that we can truly work in great freedom for the Lord. Now, uh, in the next verse, it's talking about a mediator 
and obviously the mediator is Messiah, the focus on the heavenly aspect of Yeshua, not the earthly part of him being a man. So just think of that as we read this, because it's important to understand, again, that it seems to me very intentional that the writer of Hebrews is trying to get into the mind of Jewish believers who are wavering and giving them a great reason, or many reasons, to stay strong in the faith. So in verse 15, it says, For this reason he, meaning Yeshua, but meaning the Messiah, is the mediator of new covenant, in order that those called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So, this new covenant is that promised eternal inheritance. That's what we are given. And so now, here's the explanation that goes back to the foundation. Since a death has taken place that redeems them from violations under the first covenant. For where there is a covenant, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a covenant is secured upon the basis of dead bodies, since it has no strength as long as the one who made it lives. And, and that's why probably some people translated as testament. Uh, you get a clearer picture maybe in this case with that word. But that is why not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. It's, so what do you think of when you think of that it requires, a covenant requires dead bodies? You think of um, God making uh, Abraham walk through that area after uh, he had animals on both sides that God had, had used that. To, to give him a sense that this is a covenant from God. And so this establishes this principle of, of the requirement for a covenant. And then he, uh, you know, and, and it says first covenant, and it's interesting that it says first covenant there. Uh, many people are uncomfortable with saying that it's a new covenant because... It really isn't new. It's a kind of a continuation of the first covenant. And so um, the fact that it's called first covenant and, and the second is the second covenant, um, the problem with using those names for, for what we're talking about is nobody will know what we're talking about uh, because it's, it's, not, it's not our culture. And... Do we fight the battle to change the culture? Well, in some cases, we have to. In other cases, we don't. It, you have to def decide if this is a major thing for you or a minor. And so I, I would say that what we call the covenant isn't as important as the covenant itself. Uh, on the other hand, it's certainly clear that it's the first covenant and then the second covenant. And again, Jewish people at this time period would certainly sense um, that all of this makes sense to them. 
for, based on, on what they knew of Scripture. So we go to verse 19. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the Torah, he took the blood of the calves and the goats and the water and the scarlet wool and the hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Uh, now, it's interesting because this is talking about Moses, and yet, we, as soon as I read that, I'm quickly thinking of the Lord's Supper and, and the verbiage there, because it, he, Moses says, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. Right? Okay. Just... Bear with me here. And in the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And nearly everything is purified in blood according to the Torah. And apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So the difference is that Yeshua was perfect, so he didn't need blood sprinkled on him. It was actually his blood that was used uh, for the forgiveness. And, and you know, you, you really have to start thinking about this a little and, and say uh, God's forgiveness was on the mind of Jewish people because they understood that once a year they were forgiven during Yom Kippur uh, by the shedding of the blood. So tying that into Yeshua's death is is really important. We'll talk about why as we read the next scripture. But uh, this certainly gives us a sense that Yeshua is the fulfillment of the Torah, of the law. And we see, obviously, in Matthew 5.17, where he says, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So we go into verse 23, which is I, the the category is greatness of Messiah's sacrifice. And verse 23 says, therefore it was necessary for the replicas of these heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. So in other words, because these sacrifices weren't Yeshua, who was, who was perfect, they all needed to be purified. Okay, all these replicas and they needed to be purified by sacrifice. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Messiah did not enter into holies made with hands, counterparts of the, thing, uh, of the true things, but in heaven itself, now to appear in God's presence on our behalf. Okay, so Messiah... It, when he, his going into the Holy of Holies, in a sense, was heaven. And he was there to appear in God's presence and on our behalf. Now, it's amazing just to think for a moment of Yeshua being in the Father's presence because we have, in fact, I was discussing with Leilani earlier uh, one of these issues about the triunity or the triune nature of God, or as, as others would like to say, the triune persons. And we'll talk about that, I think, in Foundations today for a few minutes. But 
the the thing is that Yeshua is in heaven and his presence is not only there but it's in uh, it's on our behalf what does that mean on our behalf it means he intercedes for us he is interceding for us and we see this in scripture in Romans 8:34 it says who is the one who condemns? It is Messiah who died and moreover was raised and is now at the right hand of God and who also intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore, he's able, also able to save completely those who draw near to God through him, always living to make intercessions for them. Luke 23, 34, here Yeshua is dying on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Even in, as, as he is in pain, he is interceding to the Father for those who have done this to him because they're clueless. And so he's, he's praying, he's interceding. This has got to be so exciting. And, and, and I believe this is one of the reasons, there are many reasons that we pray in the name of Yeshua. But we are, in a sense, when we're praying in the name of Yeshua, we, in a sense, are coming into unity as we together are, inter we are uh, interceding for ourselves, but with Yeshua to the Father. And so, most of us, I would say, are when we pray, we are always using the name Yeshua, the name above every name, right? And he did not offer himself, oh, verse 25, again and again, as Kohen Gadol enters into the Holy of Holies year after year with blood that is not his own, for then he would have needed to suffer again and again and the uh, from the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has been revealed once and for all at the close of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we have to, this is, there are a lot of hard concepts. And this is one of them. Because the first thing that people say is, well, if, if he put away sin, why do we still sin? And we don't have time for that today. It's a valid question, though. It's a valid question. And, and I think it's one that we have to ponder because we can't come up with answers that are cliches. Because they're going to be unacceptable to people. They're actually unacceptable to me. Um, so we have to really consider thinking about this this is a, a, an important concept for you to be sure about. That on one hand, he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. On the other hand, we are still struggling in sin often. So think about that. Maybe we'll throw that one into the foundations as well. Uh, and just as it is appointed for men to die once and after this judgment, so also Messiah was offered once to bear the sins of many. And, and this immediately made me think of, I, I 
didn't consider this prior, but you know, when you think of uh, people who believe in uh, reincarnation, this uh, verse obviously would speak against it, even though that's not the intention. I don't think of this verse, but it's kind of an added benefit um, as, as we look at it. But then it says, He will appear a second time apart from the sin to those eagerly awaiting him for salvation. So we see the first time Yeshua's purpose was to deal with sin and the sin nature. The second one is to deal with salvation. In other words, okay, this is your last opportunity. When I come again, this is your last opportunity. Though these verses, uh, well, let, let me just say this. The other thing about these verses is that um, where it talks about, um, oh, in verse 28, so also Messiah was offered once to bear the sins of many. And when I think of, you know, oftentimes when I read, uh, there are a cluster of words that makes me think of a different scripture. So when I think of him uh, talking about the sins of many, that he would, he would uh, uh, to bear the sins of many, it, it reminded me of Isaiah 53, 12. And it says there, therefore I will give him a portion with the great, and he'll divide the spoil with the mighty, because he poured out his soul to death and was counted with transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So look here again in Isaiah, in the Hebrew Scriptures, we see uh, that he bore the sin of many and that he was an intercessor for our sins. Don't you love how Scripture comes together like that? Okay, so let me just say this. Uh, Hebrews 9 was not intended, I think, to be a, uh, an encouragement to how to share your faith. But for me, that's exactly what it is. Uh, not only does it give us a lot of facts about the Lord, but it also gives us a direction. We are not to necessarily always go directly at people when we are sharing our faith, but we have to follow uh, the principle of understanding, let's get agreement first, let's develop a foundation, and then let's build on the foundation so that what we say will have credibility so that people will receive Yeshua as Messiah. And so I feel this is like a tremendous chapter of how to share your faith. And um, besides understanding that, though, there are so many blessings that are mentioned in this chapter. And it's, to me, it's amazing that we can live a life where our sins are forgiven and we can have eternal life, look forward to eternal life with Yeshua. Those to me, those two things alone are, are just amazing. So with that in mind, you know, I would, wouldn't want people to lose this opportunity accepting Yeshua now 
today means that you would not only receive atonement for your sins, but all the blessings that are talked about in Hebrews 9 and all the blessings that are talked about in Scripture. Uh, this is an amazing opportunity when we get that to, to come into God's presence through Yeshua, through the mediator, through the high priest. And we see that this is just a continuation of how God set it up. So none of us deserve this opportunity. We all fall short of, of God. We, we all fall short. But he gives us this opportunity to develop a personal relationship with him. So don't wait. Accept Yeshua into your heart and life today if you haven't. If you want this incredible gift and the blessings that God will bestow on you, just tell him. And so what you say is, Lord, I want to receive the blessings from knowing Yeshua as my Messiah and Lord. So just say, I'm sorry, Lord, I've sinned. And you have to mean it from the bottom of your heart, not just say it. Then you say, Lord, I receive Yeshua into my heart, for he has atoned for my sins. And finally, I, I just dedicate my life to you, Lord. And even if I don't understand it, I'm going to dedicate my life to you. There is something that is causing me to want to say this to you today, Lord, and begin a life with you. So, Lord, receive me. Because I want to walk with you. There's so many different ways to say that. But if you've said anything like that today and your heart is wanting to start that relationship with God, then let's do it. Speak to me after services, certainly. If you're online, Facebook Live, call our office. We want to bless you in this relationship with the Lord. Father, I just pray in the name of Yeshua that you would pour out your Spirit upon us individually, upon us as a congregation, upon us as disciples, wanting to follow you, wanting to serve you, wanting to obey you, wanting to share our love for you, wanting to, that you would know, Lord, that our hearts are with you, Father. Our focus is on you. We're going to think of heavenly things rather than earthly things. We're going to think of the heavenly culture, not the earthly culture. We're going to be just enjoying the power of your Spirit working in our lives. Lord, you're, you are here to make us better. We, 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 want to, we, we are not satisfied 
with who we are. Yes, we, we know you. Yes, we love you. But there are areas of our lives that have really not been dealt with yet. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us today deal with those areas. So, Father, we bless you. We thank you. We praise you. We honor you and give you all the glory in the name of Yeshua.